I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll break down the Fed's most recent take on supply chain disruptions and shortages. Plus, we'll talk about new plans from the EU and China to increase domestic semiconductor production and reduce dependence on the United States. And we'll react to the U.S. reaching a temporary truce with the U.K. and the EU in the Boeing Airbus fight. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, let's talk about the Fed's beige book. This is a subject that I know is near and dear to your hearts. Yes. Better tell them what it is, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to let Scott tell them what the Fed's beige book is. It came out a week ago, and everybody's talking about it. So, Scott, tell us what the beige book is. Well, it's basically the Fed's core economic forecasts in great detail. And apparently, at one time, it was a book. And at one time, when it was a book, the cover was beige. It's now available pretty much online now. So not even nerds like me have the beige book on their nightstand. Do they have like beige colors online or, you know, or is it just like they've gone the, you know, completely digital and it's clean, you know? I got digital black and white. So what can I tell you? (laughs) That's all I can say. That's so disappointing, you know? This can be a big issue, though. When I was on the China Commission, we put out an annual report. And they put it out in hard copy. I don't know if they do anymore, but they did put it out in hard copy all the years I was there. And every year, one of the biggest debates we had was what color to make the cover. And the commissioners would be given a choice. You know, there would be a palette of different cover, mock-up covers. We tried to rotate. So every year, it would be a little bit different. This is why people have to rent books for their shelves for their Zoom libraries, is because nobody prints beige books anymore. So what did their beige book say? It talked about shortages. Well, yes. What's new about this year's edition versus previous editions is the frequency with which the book's review of economic forecasting and the expectations for the next year is how often they talked about shortages. 31 times, which is apparently the most going back for at least a decade. Yes. And it's a very thorough look at the state of the economy. And to my mind, what this really reflects is what a dramatic shift from the status quo or the steady state, perhaps is a better way to put it, the last year of COVID shutdowns has uh, has wrought. And it's it's been a tough year on supply chains, mostly because it has been an extremely tough year for demand forecasting. Everything changed so dramatically that whether it's employment forecasting or consumer demand or whatever it would be, it was highly turbulent for at least six to eight months of the year. And it happened across so many industries that it's not surprising that we're experiencing strains on supply networks. And it continues to change. I mean, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today about how farmers in the United States are experiencing a boom because exports to China are way, way, way up. And this is, you know, in wake of the trade war with China. Well, I think it's an illustration of the fact that there's a lot of shortages, but they're not all the same. I mean, remember the toilet paper crisis of last May? That was a short-term demand spike, which which we discussed because it's it's based on uh, peculiarities in in the supply chain, where there's one chain that provides basically an industrial paper, and one that supplies consumer paper, and they're different companies, and they don't 
overlap easily. And so when you had a surplus of one and a, a deficit in the other because of this spike in consumer demand because everybody was staying home, those kinds of things the market tends to sort out. And it tends to sort out fairly quickly because there's not fundamentally a shortage of the product. There are problems in the distribution of the product primarily. When you look at one like semiconductors, which we've talked about uh, also before, it's a lot more serious. Uh, first, because it, it's not just a demand spike, although that's part of it. It's it's a miscalculation by a number of different parties as to what their likely demand was going to be. So there were forecasting errors along the way that then got built into the production process. But the sad thing about it is it's not easily remedied. You know, new fab plants are $10 billion a pop, roughly take a couple of years to build. It's not toilet paper. You can't just solve your problem by suddenly going out and making more or finding somebody somewhere who's not running at capacity. It takes time for those kinds of problems to work their way through the economy. You know, the, one of the overall economic stories of the past 12 months has been, first of all, top-line consumer demand after it cratered when everybody went home and sheltered in place for a few weeks or months. Consumer demand responded very quickly on a macro level, and total consumption stayed strong, which is why you see the stock market and equities markets performing well over this period of time. The big shift was demand for goods went up versus the previous year, and demand for services fell versus previous years. So that's why you're seeing all the disruptions of this in the goods supply chain. So we all we all went home, and then we bought our new big screen TVs, and we, we bought the computer equipment we needed to do our jobs. And in some cases, we moved out of a city into the country. We needed a car. We bought a car. And so the goods side of the equation was what saved the overall economic performance. But on the services side, particularly, let's call it live music, entertainment in general, any large crowd events, a lot of personal services, barbershops, salons, closed for some period of time. And uh, the airline industry we've talked about before, along with hotels and the entire hospitality uh, chain, restaurants and, and uh, bars. So the services side took a big hit the, uh, that was offset in, on the macro level by goods. That strained the goods supply chains. Now, what we're going to see in the next six months is strains on the employment side in services as the country reopens. One of the other things that was that's worth noting that was way up was pet adoptions. Instead of being overcrowded and not having any more room, you can get get a dog or a cat much easier now. Well, not easier. It's getting harder to get a dogs and cats because there aren't as many of them around. There's been a huge demand. People want to have pets at home, and which will then produce the next crisis when they all go back to work. What's going to happen to the dog? You know, it sounds like it's time to invest in doggy daycare. There's an opportunity. To help revive, uh, revive the services economy. You heard it first here, invest in doggy daycare. So let me ask you this, gentlemen. How long is the supply chain chaos going to last? Well, it, it depends on the sector. Obviously, some of the problems were just the supply was in the wrong place or couldn't move it. So remember, we had an episode on, on meat processing and why there were meat surpluses and shortages. Well, many commodities like meat are graded and sold under contract, and we talked about that. So those tend to resolve themselves faster because the contracting changes according to the changes in demand by the customers. Uh, so those things will sort themselves out. In other cases where you had an acceleration toward high-tech products and services, which is what working at home really did to us, 
So there's an underlying move toward there being sort of an IT chip in everything, including our skulls at some point. The acceleration in high-tech products and services has put a lot of demand on integrated circuit chips, which require a lot of investment and a lot of lead time. And so the capital-intensive products will be more difficult and time-consuming to get to catch up given the acceleration that's happened in the last year. So do we think that the solution is to consolidate and bring supply chains closer to home, or is it to diversify and maintain global supply chains? I would say more the latter than anything else. The studies that we've done, particularly in the pharmaceutical sector, have uh, recommended a trusted partnership model and made the case that autarky doesn't work very well. Reshoring everything doesn't work very well. It's only going to guarantee higher prices and more shortages. We should look for developing partnerships with countries that are reliable suppliers, uh, which is not as easy as it may sound. Okay. All right. Well, something to watch here, guys. Something else to watch is China and the EU over tech independence. What's going on with that? The EU has set 2030 as a target to produce cutting-edge semiconductors. So what does this mean for the rest of the world? Well, there's currently demand opportunities in the space, and whether Europe will successfully fill it in the next seven or eight years, uh, we'll see. This has a chance of being a useful point of investment. It also has a chance of being a fairly expensive vanity project that doesn't really pay off. So we're going to have to see what they actually do. Most of the current production, if if I understand it correctly, of uh, IT uh, chips in Europe is done by companies headquartered not in Europe. So Intel has a facility there, as do others. So this is not necessarily a a place where there's a lot of European uh, national champions that exist now that they can easily expand. They do have some sophisticated companies who make the equipment for foundries. And so they're not completely starting from zero, but it's not obvious exactly how this is going to work out and why Europe is uniquely suited to do it other than they want to. It's kind of a missed opportunity. I mean, this is a classic case because uh, building this capability is time-consuming and expensive, and it's a very sophisticated product that requires a lot of very sophisticated equipment, some of which, by the way, is made in Europe. One of the leading semiconductor manufacturing equipment producers in the world is a Dutch company, ASML. So the capabilities are there, but putting all the pieces together is complicated and difficult, and it really cries out for the trusted partnership model. And I think, you know, the U.S., I think, is the ultimate trusted partner when it comes to Europe. I mean, the idea that we would, you know, not be willing to supply their needs in, in areas that involve semiconductors is just is just really inconceivable. And I think it would be, uh, it would save them a lot of money and I think time to think more about that model than trying to develop their own capability. Well, they're saying that they want to ensure that at least 20% of the world's cutting-edge semiconductors by value are produced in Europe by the end of the decade. Does that make any sense to you guys? Reminds me of Soviet planning. You know, it, it's uh, it's sort of an arbitrary number that's not based on economic realities. And, uh, you know, we, we have our own mystifying goals that we set. Remember, uh, we're, we're going to wear masks for 100 days. I'm not sure what the science was behind the 100 days, but uh, but setting setting aggressive goals is not an unusual thing. 
the question I have regarding European semiconductors is, I don't know why this makes sense in the context of the, their own economy or the global uh, economy. And it doesn't seem like something that is ready for an obvious success. And I, look, investors will get a chance to vote on this uh, because, as, as Bill pointed out, this takes an immense amount of capital and commitment to to see it to the end. We'll see how they do raising funds for for the project. Well, this is the thing I don't understand, and Bill just alluded to this. What this indicates is that they see some risk in being dependent on the United States for chips. So what is the risk that they see? I have to ask them. I mean, I, this is what is a little bit baffling about it. It, it. I think it's tied in with something that we probably should spend a little bit more time discussing. This popular European team term, strategic autonomy, which they explain in different ways. It depends. I've been in a number of meetings with Europeans, and they all explain it a little bit differently. And right now, we're at some pains to explain that it doesn't really mean exclusion or protection. It means cooperation, but I'm not sure that it really does when you listen to what, what they have to say. And it's certainly being interpreted in the United States as an effort to uh, rein in, if you will, American high-tech companies that are doing uh, substantial business uh, in Europe. I think it's partly a vanity project, as, as Scott said. I have to say, I think it's also related to the last four years of the Trump administration and the difficult relationship we had with Europe. And the, the, the lasting... Uh, impact that he's had is to make Europeans doubt the, uh, the basically the, the commitment of the United States to Europe and the good faith of the United States, because he called that all into question with, with respect to NATO, but with on, on economics too. And I think people underestimate the negative effect that all the tariffs have had in in, in psychological terms uh, as much as in market terms. A lot of Europeans have come to the conclusion uh, that they can't count on us anymore. I think that was a, a, an evolution that began before Trump, but Trump really has, you know, put several more nails in the coffin on that. And it's going to be hard for Biden, who is, I think, committed to turning that around. It's going to be hard for him to succeed because there's just this built in now skepticism about the Americans. And I'll tell you, when I talk to them about how can we work together, what I get consistently from different Europeans is, well, how do we know in four years you're not going to go back to Trump or Trump like? And, you know, who can predict the future? I point out that, you know, we all have elections. That's been the nature of democracies. Uh, there's a German election in September. How do we know that the next German government is going to be similar to the current German government? You know, we don't. And we can't commit to what's going to happen here four years from now. But the fact that it comes up in every conversation I have tells you how worried they are that the United States has changed courses for the long term and that Biden may just be a blip. I agree that this tension does exist, but in this particular case, this is not simply a US-EU rivalry. The US has the principal global leaders in platform companies like Google and Facebook. In the particular business of IT chip production, goods production, it's actually Asia where a lot of the champions are. Taiwan, Samsung, headquartered in Korea, are some of the, the real strong producers at the leading edge. So it's not just the US when it comes to chips. So you guys think clearly that this is an outgrowth of, you know, the growing sentiment in the United States that has become something of a bipartisan sentiment that the United States needs to take care of itself before it takes care of our allies or anybody else. Well, there's certainly bipartisanship with regard to the U.S.-China 
controversies, and that that may play into this as well because of China's uh, large scale investments uh, that are intended in this very part of the high tech world. But the U.S. Uh, EU squabbles will continue on, and they kind of have a life of their own. Well, let's let's talk about China for a second. So China has also up their stakes in the tech race with the United States, and they plan to speed up development of advanced technologies from chips to AI to quantum computing over five years. And this is part of their their five-year plan, stands out for its emphasis on advanced tech and innovation. Pressure, of course, is now rising in the United States to bolster its own chip manufacturing capacity to counter China's tech rise. So the key question, I think, is, is what can the U.S. do to slow China's path to an independent technology supply chain? I think that's the wrong question. I rant on this all the time. This is the run faster versus trip the other guy issue. We don't trip in the United States. We tackle. Well, all right. Tackle the other guy. That's a good point. But I think the Biden administration has the right idea, which is the key element here is running faster. The Chinese are going to do what they're going to do. Uh, we don't control their economy. This is not a new thing. You're right that this is going to a feature of the, of the 14th five-year plan, which they're rolling out roughly now. But it was in the 13th five-year plan uh, five years ago. It was in Made in China 2025, which came out three or four years ago. Remember, those of us that are ancient like me will remember the indigenous innovation controversy. Back maybe 10 years when the Chinese were talking about indigenous innovation, we were all trying to figure out what that meant. It always meant the same thing, which was China developing its own technological capabilities. And, uh, you know, slowing that down, particularly when they try to steal our IP to do it, I think is an important policy tool. There's no question about that. But the real policy tool is how do we make sure that we're moving faster? And there the Biden administration is on the right track, which is trying to restore the United States position of innovation leadership. If this is news reporting of something that's at least 15 years old. My, my recollection is indigenous innovation was roughly 2005, 2006. So, so it's so old, it's new. Something like that. But, but then so is the five-year plan. I mean, every time I read about China's five-year plans, I think of all the old Soviet jokes. You know, Commissar calls the ag minister saying, Comrade, how is the potato crop these days? And he says, oh, Commissar, it's the best we've ever had. We're piling the potatoes all the way up to the throne of God. And the Commissar says, wait a minute, this is the Soviet Union. There, there is no God. And he says, well, that make, that's good because there are no potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a lot more than putting it on a piece of paper, whether you're yeah. Europe or or China, that says we want to be here in this sector at this time. Saying it's easier than doing it. One of the most interesting but also odd classes that I took in graduate school was on centrally planned economies, where we learned how it works, and it was awkward. There were only two of us in the class, which probably says something about the, the future of centrally planned economies. Uh, and it was embarrassing because I fell asleep one night. And in a class of two, it's fairly obvious when that happens. When you're in a lecture hall with 100, you can, you can get away with it. But what we really studied was the Soviet planning process. And it was nightmarish. I mean, you had all these people in Moscow who would be telling companies, this year you're going to make this many nails that are three inches, and you're going to make this many nails that are two inches. 
and you're going to make this many nails that are six inches. And then the task of the company was to fulfill the plan. And at the same time, other planners in Moscow were telling the steel companies to send this much steel, this many tons of steel to the nail plant. And they were telling the coal mines to send this much coal to the steel plant. And the idea was the planners would make it all work out and make it all come out even. And it never did. And the result was, on the one hand, there was never any potatoes, uh, and there were long lines to meet consumer demand for everything. And it produced the, you know, the classic Soviet joke, which is, you know, the state pretends to pay us and we pretend to work. Well, so are you guys concerned that the U.S., EU, and China are pursuing independent technology manufacturing policies? Well, I think it's inevitable. Uh, I mean, if, if the Internet's going in the same direction, I think fragmentation is what we're heading into. I, I mean, I'm sad about that. I don't think it's the best answer, but it's the way we're going. I don't see a way to stop it right now. Yeah, decoupling was not an idea created by the Trump administration or Peter Navarro or anybody else. It seems to be an operating philosophy, and uh, a lot of it is driven outside the United States. China's doing what they're doing because of their own reasons. When the Americans put uh, sanctions on ZTE, which was back in, in uh, well, the investigation was in Obama. The actual sanction was in the first couple of months of Trump. You know, I, as I recall, Xi Jinping gave a, a speech shortly after that happened. He said, basically, the Americans are unreliable. We need to go it alone. And I think he had probably come to that conclusion before ZTE anyway. But that's been their mantra ever since. You know, they are determined to develop an independent technological capability. And they want to launch that on the world. It's not just indigenous. It's about competing globally with global leaders in high-tech sectors, most of which are American companies. So I wouldn't say it's being done as a threat to us. It's being done to build up their own strength, but it constitutes a threat to us because the competitive battleground going forward is not here or there. It's in third countries, and we're going to go head to head with them in Europe. We already are, Latin America and Africa, and the, the policy question for the U.S. government is, you know, are we ready to do that? Are our companies prepared for that? And what can the government do to make sure they are prepared? Okay, guys, finally today, I got to ask you about Boeing and Airbus. The EU and the U.S. have agreed to suspend punitive tariffs related to this longstanding feud over aircraft subsidies. It's the first breakthrough in trade relations since President Biden took office. So is this quashed? <laughs> no. I mean, it's a good move because it's designed to set the stage for making a deal. And they gave themselves four months to make the deal. Keep in mind that they can always extend that and probably will. This has been going on for 17 years, right? It's now hit year 17. It actually goes back to the 70s, but, but the actual the WTO litigation is 17 years old. And you can see this company coming. The big cases of the WTO almost always get solved with a deal. You know, the two parties go off and work it out. And the WTO is not against that. In fact, it encourages that. It encourages the parties to meet directly to try to reconcile their differences. And when it's big like this, that's what happens. But, you know, we're, we're far from that. This is a little oversimplification, but not much. I mean, you know, the, the EU position on, on this, it's about subsidies. And the EU, what the EU says is, well, our offer is we'll promise not to do it anymore. And this time we mean it. Unlike the last four times we promised not to do it anymore. This time we really won't do it anymore. And the U.S. position is not good enough. Uh, you have to pay back. 
You know, you've been benefiting from these subsidies for years and uh, the company needs to give the money back. Now, you know, the irony of that is that they're not giving the money to the United States because the United States didn't pay the subsidies. They'd be giving the money back to EU governments, which I think is why ultimately there's a deal here to be made, because I'm not sure the EU government who will, you know, publicly shed many tears for Airbus, I'm not sure they're going to be that unhappy to ask Airbus to give back to them billions of dollars that they gave Airbus. It'll help their budget down the road. And, you know, if you if the negotiation ends up being about a number, you'll always make a deal. You know, the U.S. says $7 billion, The EU says zero. Okay. There's some number in the middle. Maybe not in the middle. There's some number they can probably agree on. But I think it's going to take more than four months to do it. There's an awful lot of chest beating and rhetoric that has to ensue before that happens. Bill's right. This didn't happen in four months. It's not going to be resolved in four months. So the, the, the time frame will be elastic. But look, the reason I love trade policy is it's this mixture of law and diplomacy. And eventually the diplomats get a hold of the thing and find a way to square the circle. And the lawyers will want full punishment for whatever past sins have happened. And those, those burdens often fall on people well outside the industry in dispute. So if you look, the sanctions, the so-called trade sanctions or suspension of concessions has not happened in commercial aviation. It's happened in sectors otherwise to put pressure on a settlement, whiskey or wine or whatever it might be. So this is actually put, takes relief off people in industries who were never part of the problem and got caught up in makeshift solution. That's good. I think it's always good when the US and EU are not fighting because China generally smiles when the U.S. and EU are pounded on each other. And so uh, so I, I think it's probably good for the world, the geopolitics of the situation, if the U.S. and the EU find a way to mediate this and solve it. But the suspension of collateral damage, I think, is probably a good thing out of this. Well, it's not just bilateral. I had a really interesting conversation with a Korean company that is in the middle of this, uh, that they have a plant in the United States that makes a product in the United States that they had been exporting to Europe. Uh, and now it has a 25% tariff on it because of this dispute. Korea is not a party to the dispute. As I recall, it's not the aircraft sector either. And there, you know, there's a lot of people that are caught in the middle on this, which is another reason why I think ultimately it gets solved, but it's going to take a while. That said, this is a good move. I mean, you can't get to yes without taking the first step. And this is the first step. Well, if there's one thing we've learned in the last few years, it's that trade policy is, in addition to being about law and diplomacy, it's also about optics and communication, right? And it's also about uh, whiskey. Yeah, it's also about whiskey. Thank goodness for whiskey because it's more complicated than it looks. And we usually need a drink by the time you sort it all out. <laughs> And now you can drink your scotch tariff-free. That's right. For four months. For a couple more months, right. There you go. Well, gentlemen, as always, this has been enlightening. We will see you next week, same trade time, same trade channel. Thanks. Excellent. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it.
You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.